it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, March 13th, 2023. A brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And then around the clock on demand on our podcast as well, always free of charge, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. We will get to our first guest in just a moment. Coming up later on, U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty will be here, Republican of Tennessee. Also, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for the presidency, an anti-woke businessman, We will check in with him as well on today's program as everything unfolds. As we begin the show today, we are pleased to welcome in Charlie Gasparino, Fox Business Network senior correspondent and a columnist at The New York Post. And Charlie, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. If you can just explain as simply as you can what on earth is happening with Silicon Valley Bank, I think a lot of Americans are having deeply uncomfortable flashbacks to 2008 when the banking system faltered and then collapsed, and there was a lot of pain for a long time for a lot of people. The White House and others saying, nope, this is different. No need to panic. What actually happened with this bank, and where do we go from here? By the way, they said it before 2008 actually happened. <laughs> Don't panic. We're almost through this thing. I, I covered it blow by blow. Trust me on this. Um, I wrote a best-selling book on it. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. Every financial crisis has is different every everyone has some of the same elements Let, let's just back up and how we got to this point during since 2020 since the, the the economy was locked down in 2020 we've been spending money fiscally um at astronomical at an at a rate not seen historically i mean debt is i think we have 100 debt is 130% of gdp right now I mean that's so you know we're, we're approaching twice as much of our G, we have more than twice as much debt than we have GDP. Um, we've been printing money like there's like it's going out of style until recently. The Fed has greatly expanded its balance sheet. That that some of that money printing when they say print money, what, what it really means is they buy in the open market securities. So they're essentially buying the securities that were that the Treasury is issuing. It's a little bit of a a shell game, I guess you could say. You put those things together, and you're going to get some bad stuff once the music stops. Now, why did the music stop? The music stopped because we had all this, you know, caused the massive inflation, which is a wicked tax on the working and middle class. So while you can speculate in stocks through this stuff, you know, when it really comes down to it, average people don't do that. They have to put gas in the car, they have to put food on the table, and they can't afford it. And that's essentially what happened when the uh, about a year ago when the Fed started raising rates. When you normalize out of that insanity that I told you, and we are talking trillions of dollars of insanity that never ended. You know, there was one thing when you shut down the economy to do some stuff, right, for a year, then they kept doing it. Joe Biden did three or four 
stimulus plans after that. He called it different stuff. I mean, he made he called something the Anti-Inflation Act. I mean, I can't remember what he was what he what he called them, but he, they never stopped spending money. Joe Manchin should be ashamed of himself because he helped cause some of this stuff because he went along with those things in the end. Uh, Jerome Powell until recently didn't stop printing money. He kept buying bonds, keeping interest rates low. Uh, so when the inflation step st- started, the Fed does the reverse course. Republicans obviously have have, this, have the House now, so there's not going to be many more spending measures uh, coming. And now what you have is the inevitable unwind of that excess. And that unwind will manifest itself in stock prices going nuts, ups and, ups and downs. We're still technically in a, in a bear market, though not t- terribly off the highs. Uh, crypto being crushed, Bitcoin and others. Most most crypto is completely evaporated. Bitcoin uh, was as high as 60. It it's, has, a believe it or not, a rally today, so it's at 24, but you, you, that's a fairly significant decline. Um, meme stocks, remember people were buying all these crazy stocks with money-losing companies. They've corrected. And now you're going to get other corrections. The banking system in particular, in particular is vulnerable to those corrections because banks – So why this bank, Charlie? Because, I mean, obviously for now they're telling us it's not systemic. This thing's kind of walled off. It's limited to this and, and one other bank. Don't worry. It's not going – across the board, which is sort of the cascade effect that we saw in 2008, what is it about this bank and why should or shouldn't be other average Americans worried about what might come next? Because they're telling us this is just like a, a small kind of a blip, if you will. Well, let me back up. You know, listen to what I just said. Those conditions create these sort of um, financial irregularities. This bank didn't invent the type of risk-taking it took. Other banks will do what they did because it had so much money on its balance sheet. It had it grew dramatically like most banks did during those money-printing fiscal blowout years that it went out on the risk spectrum like people do when, there's, when, the, when you have interest rates at zero, and it gambled. And when you do that sort of stuff – you and you, this this is this is this is the result, and so the Biden administration is coming out and saying, "Well, just this one." Then they close down another one, Signature Bank. Well, that's different because they were involved in crypto. You're going to be seeing a lot of this stuff now. Do I think J.P. Morgan and the big money center banks are impaired? Probably not. Uh, is there a c- certain unique characteristics to this one? Yeah, it was in Silicon Valley, which, by the way, is having its own issues with um, you know the markets being coming off their right. highs. A lot of tech companies are are, are so some of those VCs that, that had short-term money with Silicon Valley Bank was, were taking it out. I get that. But, you know, make no mistake, this, this can't be the only one. It can't. Charlie Gasparino, I want to play for you three sound bites. I'll just play them and call for them back to back to back and get your reaction. This is the response that we're seeing yesterday and today from the Biden administration. Let's start yesterday. Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, went on CBS. She made the rounds. Here's part of what she said in Cut 11. Let me be clear that um, during the financial crisis, um, there were um, investors um, and owners of systemic large banks that were bailed out, and we're certainly not looking, and uh, the reforms that have been put in place means that we're not going to do that again, but we are concerned about depositors and are focused on 
uh, trying to meet their needs. No bailout, she says. Then earlier today, Corinne Jean-Pierre aboard Air Force One heading out to California. People were asking the questions that I raised at the outset here. Does this have an echo of 2008? Here's what she said in Cut 42. Republicans are saying this is a bailout. Is that how would no, you respond? This is not to that? a bailout. Again, this is not 2008 at all. The funds, uh, the funds uh, are from fees on banks and not taxpayers. So this is very different than what we saw in 2008. Very different. Not a bailout. Last but not least, the president this morning came out, and gave a statement, a short speech about this. Part of which was blaming the previous administration for what's happening. Cut 41. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including the Dodd-Frank law to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again. All right, Charlie. So here you have the Treasury Secretary and the Press Secretary saying, we're not doing bailouts. This isn't 08. And President Biden saying, well, this happened because of deregulation under the last guy. What do you make of all of that? Yeah, I mean, wait until he has to prove that last statement. You look at the law that they say they tweaked that led to this, and you'll see it's a nothing burger. It has very little to do with this. This has everything to do with risk taking that ever that financial players take do when you, President Biden, flood the zone with money, which is what he did, borrowed at an astronomical extent. And on top of that, you have a Fed that's very accommodative and keeps interest rates at zero and prints money and things of that nature. Go back and look at the exact law, which I did. By the way, your viewers will turn off if I have to explain it to you. I actually had to, had an economist write it, or a guy, excuse me, uh, a policymaker, you know, give me a give me a summation of it. it it's it's very detailed, and it, it and it's I I would say it's. I don't want to use the word that I usually use when I, when I hear Joe Biden blow blow smoke, but it's, it's, <laughs> okay. it, 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 it is literally baloney what he's saying. So, but go back and look at the exact law that was that he's pointed to. It's it's a joke. Um, as far as this not being a bailout, let's be real clear here. Under FDIC insurance, and yes, that's theoretically paid for by banks, but banks charge a fee for you to do bank there, do banking with them, so they can pay that FDIC insurance. So you're kind of paying for it anyway, just so you know. Um, the FDIC insurance only covers deposits up to $250,000. These companies that had deposits, these were big VC companies in Signature and mostly Silicon Valley Bank, we're talking millions. So who's paying those millions? And okay. who deserves to be made whole and, and who doesn't, right? Because the inherent in risk-taking is the word risk, and it shouldn't be up to taxpayers to bail someone out if they've taken a bad risk with some of their decisions. But then they're saying, well, it's not systemic, but we're going to try to treat it as such briefly to try to stem the tide and, and calm everyone down. It just seems like there's some mixed messages here. Yes, they're going to say that. By the way, before we had the Lehman moment that caused the bigger crack of crash of the financial system, we had a bunch of smaller measures. You do realize that. You had Bear Stearns. That was uh, some sort of a forced takeover by J.P. Morgan, aided and assisted by the government. They gave them some they, – they, they relieved them of some of the liabilities. There was some government help there. You had um, some of the takeover – you had the takeover of Fannie and Freddie. 
the big mortgage lenders, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and I'm probably leaving a bunch out. There was a bunch of stuff that led up to the mother of all bailouts. And each time we heard, oh, this is it, you know, we're just going to make the system better, and we moved on. Uh, this, my view is, this is there's a deeper problem here. But we should get back to that point about bailouts. Yes, the the you know the the um, investors, the the equity holders in Signature Bank and 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 Silicon Valley Bank were not made whole. By the way, they weren't made whole in those other ones. The the the, the bailouts crushed a lot of the uh, a lot of the holders. I think mm-hmm. Lehman Brothers went to zero, obviously because that wasn't bailed out. But Bear Stearns went to ten. You know, from where it was, you know, 30, 40. Um, so most of those bailouts did not really help equity holders too much. There was there was massive dilution, so stock prices went down. So they they were bailouts to keep the the, the institutions afloat more than they were bailouts for the equity holders. This is a bailout of the depositors because if they imposed regular de- like legal depositor limits that's on the books. At at two hundred fifty thousand dollars, all these banks, all these companies that banked with Silicon Valley Bank would be maybe out of business because they've had they had millions there. They use they use Silicon Valley Bank as a storage for their short term for their for for their, for short term cash that they use to pay payrolls and things of that nature. So you know it's a little bit of a sleight of hand and and semantics that that they're all using. And in terms of this being a one off, I could just tell you you can't do what they did with the economy and the fi- and the plumbing of the financial system and have this be a one-off. It makes you have it be limited to just one bank or two banks for the reasons that you laid out. Charlie, just a minute left. What's your message to average people who like me are sort of confused by the complexities of this? They're a little bit scared. They're wondering, do I need to do something? Can something be done? What's the answer to a question like that? Well, if you're worried about your money, your money in a bank. I mean, I my brother banks with JP Morgan. It's Chase, uh, uh, you know, the Jamie Dimon bank. I do too. He asked me, was my money safe there? I said, yeah, I think it is. But if you're going to you know, put money in a bank, you know, maybe not have more than $250,000. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Go for the limit and uh, put the rest in a money market fund, which continually rolls over. It doesn't have insurance, but it, there is a, it, because it's such short-term paper, it'll continually roll over it and it's much safer. Do you see what I'm saying? It's often invested in treasuries and things. Or buy treasury bills. You know, you could do that. You know, that's full faith and credit of the U.S. government. That's kind of how you have to do it here. And uh, if you're really worried, the broader implications is is the economy and the financial system. And, you know, that's where this thing could get squirrely and we could have other bank failures. We could have other blow-ups in the markets, hedge funds going down. That's never good for the economy. I know they say it's only Wall Street, but it's never. It has it has deep implications for, for Main Street. Bank businesses go under. You know, stuff happens. And, uh, and I think we're going to have some of that. You can't have what they did. And then try and then try to reverse the inflationary impact of it without some dislocation, and we're seeing that right now. Well, watching it all very closely, all over Fox News and Fox Business, senior correspondent at FBN, our guest here, Charlie Gasparino, all over it. He also writes at the New York Post. You can follow him on Twitter at c gasparino. Charlie, appreciate your insights today. Thank you. Anytime. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Just getting started. A busy week ahead on the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So earlier today on MSNBC discussing President Biden's comments that he came out first thing at the crack of nine to tell the American people not to worry about these banks. Jen Psaki, his former spokeswoman, who has, I guess, a show debuting upcoming at MSNBC, I think. And she was on there and she made this statement, something of an admission, sort of interesting little nugget that we learned in Cut 38. Listen to this. Now, it's important to note, President Biden does nothing at 9 a.m. He is a night owl. So the fact that he is doing this at 9 a.m. anyway speaks to how uh, vital the White House recognizes it is for him to have his voice out there. He got up at 9 a.m. to signal how important this is because he does nothing, she says, at 9 a.m. Because he's a night owl. Look, I get it. I'm sympathetic. I am a night owl. My hours are like off. I'm also not president of the United States of America. Also, we almost never see him later at night. Various theories on why, like uh, maybe he slows down a little bit at night. They do have this little sweet spot in terms of when they put him out there. Usually they have him making public comments like very late morning to mid afternoon. That's when they put him out there. Now, she says he's a night owl up very late. I mean, maybe. But he does nothing at 9 a.m.? Like, I was like, was she talking about 7 a.m. or 6 a.m.? No, 9 a.m. The president never does anything. And I guess she was sharing this little tidbit to try to point out the gravity of the situation and how seriously they're taking it as a messaging issue at the White House. They're taking the extraordinary step of having Joe Biden in public at 9 o'clock in the morning. That is just a fascinating little nugget of information from Jen Psaki. I'm not sure she's helping to make the point that she thinks she's making. Now, for her sake, I hope her show doesn't air before, let's say, 11 a.m. If she wants her former boss watching, apparently, he doesn't do anything at 9. I don't know what time her show is. I probably, with all respect, won't be watching. He does nothing at 9 a.m. All right. I mean, I get it. He's 80. He's also president and wants to be president, apparently, for six more years. Huh. Guy Benson Show back with more right after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, I was en route to Arizona on Friday night, and I saw this come across, and it has bothered me all weekend. I wrote about it today at townhall.com. So the president of Mexico, 
Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO for short. He's sort of this uh, left-wing guy down there in Mexico, presiding over a quasi-failed state that does not control large swaths of its own territory, which is de facto controlled by Mexican drug cartels. And we actually talked about this recently on the show last week here in studio. Bill Barr was with us, the former attorney general of the United States. And he'd written a tough piece in the Wall Street Journal about this threat, the cartel threat. And other Republicans in particular are really speaking out more aggressively about it. From Dan Crenshaw to Chip Roy to Lindsey Graham and others. They're angry and they're right to be angry. Because Mexico is a staging ground for these cartels, funneling not just arms and drugs and humans into our country illegally, but among those drugs is fentanyl, much of it originating in China, coming to Mexico and being basically targeted directly into the United States. Other countries don't really have the fentanyl death and poisoning problem that we have. And overwhelmingly, it's coming from Mexico. And it's not just a small problem. 70,000 Americans died last year from fentanyl poisoning. 70,000. And the Mexican government is unwilling slash unable, combination, to really stem the tide. So some Republicans are speaking up about it, saying this is unacceptable. Tens of thousands of deaths. And the president of Mexico is very angry about it. He's lashing out. He's blaming America for the fentanyl problem, saying it's our problem, not his problem, so back off. And he's effectively running interference for the cartels against whom he has gone very soft. In fact, Bill Barr was telling us when he came to power, he shifted Mexico's official public policy on the cartels. To hugs, not bullets. To stop cooperating, broadly speaking, with counter-narcotics operations with the United States. So it's clear who's really running the show and calling the shots in Mexico in a lot of very significant ways, which is scary, which is dangerous, which has dire consequences for us in this country. Then, of course, there's the absolute endemic corruption in Mexican politics. But this guy, AMLO, all indignant, not just indignant and blaming us, but making threats. So here's how he started this rant late last week. Cut 27, I'll translate. No, lo admitimos. A México se le respeta. We don't accept it. Mexico must be respected. We are not a protectorate of the U.S., nor a colony of the U.S. Mexico is a free, independent, sovereign country. We don't receive orders from anyone. Here, the people of Mexico rule because they, meaning Republicans, are doing this for propaganda purposes. They're grabbing on saying the fentanyl is the responsibility of Mexico. We don't produce fentanyl here. Well, yeah, a lot of it's produced in China, then sent to Mexico to come into the United States where it then gets laced into a bunch of drugs and kills tens of thousands of us. 
Now, Mexico technically is a free, sovereign country. I'm not sure how free they are. I'm not sure how sovereign they are, given what we were just talking about with the cartels. But if that's all that he had said, I would take issue with it. I would say the finger-pointing and the assignment of blame, because he went on talking about how it's you know the American authorities' problems and the American cartels that the Americans have to deal with. I mean, when you've got a staging ground just south of the border, and of course some of this goes back to our terrible border policies under Biden, that is a clear and present danger to the United States. And just like you had Afghanistan and the Taliban harboring al-Qaeda before and then after 9-11, this is a different type of threat, a different type of deadly threat right on our border. And the governor of Mexico, the government of Mexico, is in effect harboring this sort of narco-terrorist cabal that are these cartels. AMLO went on to say this, and this is where I really start to see red. Because he was mad at American politicians, elected officials, elected by the American people, correctly identifying a threat in Mexico that his government doesn't have the wherewithal or the desire to deal with as Americans are dying by the tens of thousands. And he starts making threats, political threats, against the Republicans who are talking about the issue. He said, starting today, we are going to start... An information campaign for Mexicans who live and work in the United States and for all Hispanics to inform them of what we are doing in Mexico and how this initiative by the Republicans, in addition to being irresponsible, is an offense against the people of Mexico, a lack of respect for our independence and our sovereignty. Now, here's the threat. He said if they do not change their attitude and think that they're going to use Mexico for their propaganda, electoral and political purposes, we are going to call for them not to vote for that party, meaning Hispanics, because it is interventionist, inhumane, hypocritical, and corrupt. I mean, it takes some real cojones, Mr. President, to call someone else corrupt when you're the Mexican president, with all due respect. He later added that Mexico and he would be insisting that, quote, not one vote go to Republicans from any Mexican-American or Hispanic-American. The FoxNews.com write-up says Lopez Obrador was responding to calls for action from Republican lawmakers, including military action to crack down on the continuing smuggling of fentanyl into the U.S. So, I mean, he is going to bat theoretically for Mexican sovereignty, which for reasons I've already explained is in question. And, by extension, going to bat for the cartels. That's what he's doing. And what he is vowing, what he is threatening here, is foreign electoral interference. He is promising to meddle in U.S. elections. To tell people of a certain ethnic background or skin color not to vote for one party over the other in the United States because he's mad that that party is calling out the problem that's killing tens of thousands of American citizens every year. And for which his government bears a great deal of responsibility through their action and, frankly, inaction. I'm so old that I remember people 
losing their minds over foreign governments interfering in elections through bot farms or whatever, and some of the clumsy things, for example, that the Russians were doing in 2016, which I've attacked. I'm against that, too. But remember, that was like, you know, a great, grave assault on our republic and our democracy. Well, here's a leader, quote-unquote, on our border, an ally, supposedly, threatening to actively interfere in our elections with a propaganda campaign to try to give marching orders to Hispanic voters to pick one party over the other because he doesn't like some of the rhetoric about a problem that he doesn't want to have to address. This is absolutely outrageous for him to say this stuff. Shameless. Absolutely shameless. By the way, just the the arrogance that he thinks as the president of Mexico, he can sort of boss around Hispanic Americans and tell them how to vote, like he can control their vote with some propaganda campaign. These are American citizens that he's talking about. But because his last name is Lopez Obrador, they're going to listen to him, take their marching orders from the president of a basket case country that can't even control its own territory. I mean, I I think that he has a very outsized opinion of himself and his influence, first of all. And if I were Hispanic, Mexican descent or otherwise, I would really resent some half-assed politician from some foreign country suggesting that he can tell me how I exercise my right to vote as a U.S. citizen. My reaction would be, back the hell off. But I guess this is... The only thing he can think of, right? If you're going to have drug cartels operating often with impunity. By the way, this guy said all of this, thumping his chest, making threats about election interference in the United States. He did this, what, a few days after the cartels murdered two U.S. citizens. Now, they apologize because I think they recognize really pissing off America is not good for business. Some of the rhetoric from Republicans would only intensify If they're murdering our people, that's another, like directly murdering, not just the indirect stuff with fentanyl, direct murder. So they they said, oh, we're sorry, that was mistaken identity, we didn't mean to, here are the guys who did it, put them in jail, didn't mean that. Oops, you still have two dead Americans. And just a total lack of control, certainly by the Mexican government, right around our border, which, I mean, again, it, it throws into stark relief the mess at our southern border. Are you surprised that this left-wing president of Mexico would want to urge people to vote for Joe Biden and his party, given what Joe Biden and his party are responsible for at the border? I mean, they are sort of natural allies in some ways. Lopez Obrador, the Biden Democrats, and the drug cartels. I'm not saying that the drug cartels and their brutality are supported by the Democrats, but... The Democrats' policies certainly make their lives a lot easier for them to continue enriching themselves and, yes, poisoning people in this country. When you have weak border policies, there are consequences, and it's not rude or unseemly to call out the policies. I'm not saying that Joe Biden loves drug cartels. I'm saying that the drug cartels probably love Joe Biden's policies. And here we've got the president of Mexico siding with both 
the Democrats and the drug cartels against Republicans. In some ways, I feel like this is an anti-endorsement that could help Republicans. And not just among non-Hispanic voters, also among many Hispanic voters. You've got this punk in Mexico trying to tell you how to vote because he thinks that he can dictate that because of what, the color of your skin or something? That you should exercise your right to vote in America to do his bidding to basically prop up or give a pass to the drug cartels? I don't think so. For him to be threatening, and I do wonder, will the Biden administration, who are there very much against foreign electoral meddling, they always tell us that, are they going to do one damn thing about this? Even like a brushback pitch, like, yo, stay out of our politics? Uh, I guess we'll see. But, I mean, I saw this story, as you can tell. I'm still mad about it. And, by the way, the rhetoric and the concern should not stop. Just because this guy is going to start making, you know, electoral threats that I think are massively overblown and, in fact, could backfire in his position, I guess this is all he's got. Because it's sort of like an or else what. You stop saying these things about the cartels in our country or else what, dude. You can't even control your own country. Your own military sometimes gets beaten in battles by the drug cartels. Or else what? We've got to protect ourselves and our people. I'm not saying we should go invade Mexico, take over the country. That's crazy. But Bill Barr is talking about targeted strikes against some of these cartels. AMLO's not going to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He's not capable of it, whatever. He's not responsible for our sovereignty and our safety. Our government is. And our elected officials will say whatever they damn please in this country because that's how we operate in America. It's different in Mexico. And by the way, you don't see people fleeing from our country down there. Right? Mexico doesn't need to build a wall to keep Americans out of all political stripes, of all racial backgrounds. There's a reason for that. So this third-rate politician down there has the gall to threaten electoral interference in the United States because he's angry that he's getting called out, his government, about their total ineptitude at best, about a threat that is real and serious and lethal to the American people. He can absolutely pound sand. And maybe I'm naive to hope that this is even a step too far, even for the Biden administration. Now, if you had some right-wing leader, north or south of our border, saying that they were going to engage in a propaganda campaign to try to defeat the Democrats, I think you might see a lot of outcry about that among the Democrats and their fellow Democrats in the news media. That's just a guess. You know, uh, Senor Presidente, if you don't want these types of things being said, if that's so offensive to you and your sense of, you know, national sovereignty, then by all means, take on the cartels. Partner with us in a meaningful way. Help us secure a border in a way that some of our own officials won't even do. There are things you can do, at least theoretically, or you can pop off like this. And if he does that, by the way, and if, God willing, Republicans win the next election, now all of a sudden he's got to deal with a lot more Republicans, I hope he comes to deeply regret these words. It's unacceptable. And coming from someone like him, give me a break.
Who the hell are you? We will take a break, and I will calm down, and we will continue on The Guy Benson Show after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We continue on The Guy Benson Show. I just saw this interview with Jennifer Granholm, who is the former governor of Michigan and now the energy secretary under President Biden. And she was very laudatory toward China on climate change. It's just amazing. Here she is in Cut 35. I think China has done, um, has been very sensitive and has actually invested a lot in their solutions uh, to achieve their goals. So we're, we're hopeful that, you know, we can all learn from what China is doing, but the amount of money that they're investing in clean energy is actually, you know, uh, encouraging. Very encouraging. We could all learn from China. Is she aware that if you're looking at carbon emissions, China dwarfs the rest of the entire developed world? What is she talking about? Is she so naive that she believes this? We could, like, end all of our carbon emissions and it would all get swamped anyway by what China's doing. They don't care about this. They understand that Westerners want to hear platitudes and they can, oh, look at what we're doing. Here's some money that we're spending. The Chinese are massive emitters. Also, P.S., they're doing an act of genocide against ethnic and religious minorities and crushing democracy in Hong Kong. And they covered up COVID that killed millions of people, how it got started. And the list goes on. And she's talking about how hopeful it is and how much we can learn from them and how encouraging it is. I mean, you could call it naive. I don't know if that word really captures it. That's the Energy Secretary of the United States of America. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show. Up next. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. We are very glad to have you every weekday on The Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free when the show is over. That's at GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow, which was in the green for much of the day in spite of the turbulence in the banking sector over the weekend, Doing all right, then ultimately dropped off at the end of the day and closed down 90 points to 31,819. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, a Republican from Tennessee, elected in 2020. He serves on multiple committees, including, in a relevant way, the Banking Committee in the U.S. Senate. And, Senator, it's good to have you back on the show. Welcome. Uh, Thank you, guys. Good to be back with you. My understanding is you were at SVB headquarters just recently in the aftermath of this collapse. What can you tell us about what you are learning, what caused this, and should average Americans be concerned about what might be coming next? Well, to be clear, I was president at SVB headquarters. There was nobody there. The parking lot's empty. Um, but what I wanted to make a point of is that we need to get to bottom to the bottom of this. And the responsibility lies with the management team at SVB and, quite frankly, with the San Francisco Fed. 
They had the tools that they needed to assess and understand the fact that SVB's balance sheet had changed dramatically since 2019. They went from $70 billion of assets uh, to $211 billion of assets by 2022. Uh, a massive increase, a tremendous number of deposits coming in. Uh, this is something that the San Francisco Fed would have had the information for. Uh, they did not look into it evidently enough, and, and frankly, it's clear that SVB's management uh, has failed. From a risk management standpoint, they must have been asleep at the wheel. Many questions to be answered, Guy. So what exactly happened here in your mind? Because everyone has their pet theories, and we've seen a lot of people rush out and immediately blame sort of partisan actors that they dislike, people that they want to blame anyway, right? So we've seen some Republicans saying, oh, this is what happens when you have woke banking and weakness in the White House. You've seen Democrats, including the president himself this morning, say this is because of deregulation under President Trump. People are sort of already going to their political corners. Is this a political issue in your mind? Uh, it, it shouldn't be, but it doesn't surprise me that that's exactly where you know, we, we've got people running right now. There's there's a lack of accountability in this administration that's just breathtaking. You think about what happened in Afghanistan. No one was held to account. In this situation, you've got regulators that had responsibilities, and they obviously failed in their responsibilities. To argue that they need more legislation or this is a regulatory shortfall, let me, let me take you through that. Um, there is a claim, so to speak, that uh, the Trump administration's activities to reduce certain one-size-fits-all mandatory reporting requirements is at fault here. But the San Francisco Fed uh, should have watched what was happening. Silicon Valley Bank grew from $70 billion in 2019 to $211 billion in 2022, more than doubled in terms of its assets. At that point, it became what is known as a Category 4 bank under Section 2155. That's the regulations that some of the Democrats are pointing to, saying, you know, you shouldn't have, have allowed tailoring of these regulations, again, getting away from one-size-fits-all and trying to adjust them for the, for the actual risk. But what really did happen, the San Francisco Fed would have had detailed liquidity data on what was happening. And the, that piece of regulation they're talking about, uh, 2155, gave the San Francisco Fed the explicit authority to increase the regulatory scrutiny of this bank. And if they'd been carefully monitoring the liquidity data, uh, and I presume they would have you know, done this, um, then they had all the tools necessary to present, prevent this from happening. The other thing is management itself. Uh, we've got to hold the management team accountable here in terms of their risk management. What they did was create a liquidity problem. This wasn't a solvency problem. Uh, it was a liquidity problem. They they had high-quality securities, but they kept moving out in duration. The duration got longer and longer in order to, to, to chase rates, try to improve their rates, try to improve their profitability. Well, what happened when the Fed began to increase rates here recently to try to combat inflation, um, that risk that they took on, that, that interest rate risk, that duration risk, uh, came home to bear. And in what they call yep. that hold to market, hold to maturity accounts, uh, they never planned to liquidate these securities. But when they had a, a, a client base like Silicon Valley uniquely does, this is a lot of startup companies guy with zero revenues, high cash burn rates. When the demand started coming in to pull this cash out, uh, they actually had to pull some of their hold to maturity securities over to the securities that they were ready to sell to create liquidity. This became a liquidity crunch. They took a loss. That was the precipitant of all of this. Poor management at the heart of it. Yep. And Charlie Gasparino in our first hour was making a few of those similar points. It's not disconnected from a policy environment and a fiscal environment that we're seeing in this country. I think there's no doubt about that. We're seeing from the White House today and yesterday an insistence that 
any of the steps being taken do not constitute a bailout. Uh, setting aside Biden's comments today, trying to blame this on Trump, uh, and, and I think you have been very skeptical of that. Gasparino was as well. They are taking several steps. They're trying to reassure markets. They're saying this is not a bailout. What is your thought on that? What do you believe in terms of if they've done the right thing? Are they helping the problem? Do you do you support or oppose what the response has been thus far? And then what about this debate that they're currently having? You're seeing Republicans coming out saying this is absolutely a bailout. There should be no bailout money for this bank. Where do you come down on that? Well, it's just a matter of semantics, guy. I mean, this is a look at the facts. Um, what they've been clear about is that the FDIC is going to raise the fees on every other bank in America to pay for whatever whatever gap, whatever divot happens to exist between the value of the securities that are being called in and, and, and any losses that are taken. So to the extent there are losses, they're going to spread those losses across all of the member banks in the United States. That means a fee increase. Last time I checked, banks in Tennessee certainly pay taxes. Uh, they're going to be paying for this. And frankly, I think the banks are going to wind up pushing a lot of these costs on, along to their customers. So the fact that this is a cost-free um, you know, situation, I think, is that, that's folly. Again, this is just a matter of semantics. Uh, we, we know what's happening here. Uh, they are indeed bailing out a bank that has failed due to bad management. Um, you know what does need to happen, though, is that the depositors here need to realize that they're safe. There's a lot of talk over the weekend, guy, and I spent hours Friday, Saturday, Sunday over the weekend talking with bankers. A lot of companies worried about whether they need to be rearranging their deposits across America. That does not need to happen, and that's what the aim of the Fed's move has been here, to reassure depositors that they are fine where they are. We don't want to see a situation where every single depositor in America runs toward these large, too-big-to-fail banks. That's the exact opposite of what we want to see happen here. Markets need to digest this. I talked with uh, Chairman Jay Powell last night. We both agreed that today will be bumpy. Maybe, maybe the first couple of days will be bumpy as the markets digest this. But as they do, I'm confident that the markets will calm and we'll be able to take a much clearer and harder look at what specifically happened at Silicon Valley Bank. And again, I think what we will find is that there are management failures there at the bank from a risk management standpoint. Uh, there are management failures on, on behalf of the regulators that need to be understood. And as you mentioned, I serve on the banking committee, but I'm also the ranking member of the appropriations committee that's responsible for financial services and general government. There will be accountability for this. Will there be other bank failures? There's two caught up in this, and the optimists are saying it's sort of walled off. It's a unique circumstance. Other people are not so sure, saying, you know, we saw this pre-2008, smaller entities going down. You know, was SVB and Signature, were they the only, uh, you know, financial institutions that were leveraged this way and taking these types of risks that have that have obviously gone belly up? Should the American people perhaps embrace the reality or brace for a potential eventuality that more of these banks might fail, or is that too catastrophic right now? Well, I, 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 I think if you look at Silicon Valley Bank, this has been said time and again. It is a unique bank. I, I've uh, been aware of this bank in the marketplace for 25 years. They, they market themselves as the bank that understands how to value private securities when no one else can. They have a very different place in the market, uh, and they had an enormous amount of deposits relative to their loan portfolio. So they are different and unique in many ways. I think that, that point's been made by, by many, many people. But a basic problem does exist, and that is that many banks – 
looking to improve their earnings in a low, low interest rate environment, uh, you know, took on treasuries, mortgage-backed mortgage securities, securities with that, that the Fed does not require them to, 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 to risk weight. But they went further out in the duration to try to get a little bit more yield, and again, again trying to increase and improve their profitability. Um, Silicon Valley is an extreme case of this. But I think the number of banks, if you were to mark their, their hold-to-market securities to market today, they'd be in a negative position. That's why the Fed came out with this particular line of credit that allows banks that do have liquidity needs to basically go and, and tap that rather than have to realize the losses. That's an acknowledgment of the circumstance. But I think that structure that's in place now should calm the marketplace. And I think people stepping back and looking at this over the next couple of days will realize that there's not a need to go in and rearrange the allocation of your assets that allocation of your deposits, that uh, we will weather this storm. And, I, and I'm, I'm hopeful that, we'll, that, that this is very limited to where we are right now. You know, First Republic Bank uh, in California uh, saw some very extreme trading today. The markets actually shut down for a while there. They're back trading. My understanding is they, they were, were, were back up and rebounded pretty significantly today. So I think this is just a part of the bumpy aspects of digesting what took place over the weekend. Senator Haggerty, one last question on a different matter. I just mentioned this in the last hour. In recent days, we've seen comments from the president of Mexico. I know that you've spoken out on the border crisis. The president of Mexico is very angry at Republicans specifically in the United States for talking tough on the drug cartels and the fentanyl crisis and the Mexican government's inability to get a handle on that problem and to exert really sovereignty over large swaths of their own territory. Uh, there's a big problem. It's killing a lot of Americans. And President Lopez Obrador is angry because people in your party are talking about this in an aggressive way and saying that the U.S. intelligence and even military assets might need to be used in a targeted way against the drug cartels. And the Mexican president said that we're a sovereign country, basically back off. And if you don't change your attitude, he said he promised, he threatened to interfere in U.S. elections and create a what he called information campaign targeting Hispanic voters to try to ensure that not a single Hispanic voter votes for Republicans because of what Republican politicians are saying about the failures of his country. I just wonder what your reaction to that is from a foreign leader of a quasi-failed state that borders our own. Well, I've had um, you know very, a very troubled relationship with this this Mexican president myself. Uh, I've been on the floor of the United States Senate talking about the fact that he's seen fit to nationalize U.S. companies' assets there in Mexico. The rule of law means nothing to this president. I've met with his foreign minister, uh, an adult in the room with the, in the cabinet. Uh, I've talked to the foreign minister about the specific situation at the Mexican border. Lopez Obrador has basically ceded control of his northern border to the cartels. Those cartels operate in partnership with the Chinese Communist Party. If he won't do something about it, it's certainly incumbent on leaders here in America. And if the Republicans are the only ones that are going to speak up about it, so be it. But I don't think any of us are uh, inclined to take these threats from, from this president seriously. Uh, I think we need to point the finger where it belongs. We have a, a, an epidemic 
that that is killing young people here in America. The number one killer of people in the age group 18 to 45 in America today is drug overdose. Most of it fentanyl, and the vast majority of it coming across that border that he will not secure. So we need to be working in partnership with him to secure that border rather than pointing fingers. I agree with that, but the Biden administration has no interest in doing that. So the Republican administration is doing the Republican leadership here are doing as best we can to put pressure on the situation from every corner to try to stop deaths here in America. Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, our guest, member of the Banking Committee, among others, uh, which is, of course, highly pertinent to our conversation today and the news over the weekend. Senator, we appreciate your insights and your experience and your time, especially today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All the best. Let's step aside. We'll take a very quick break. We'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for listening. You know, I was on one of the really endless flights that I've been on recently, just yesterday, and the pilot came on and said the thing that the captains always say. is like, oh, we realize that you have a choice in air travel, so thank you for choosing United. The friendly skies of United. I say, you're welcome, even when your Wi-Fi isn't working like it wasn't yesterday. But I think it applies to our space as well. You have a lot of choices out there. In our time slot, in the podcast space, I mean, there's a lot of different people and content clamoring for your attention. There's only so much time in the day. So the fact that you guys listen to us and we've been growing is extremely meaningful to us. We are very grateful. We realize that you have a choice in radio programs and podcasts, and we just appreciate you flying the friendly skies of The Guy Benson Show. Let's keep growing together. I saw this yesterday, and it just (laughs) made me shake my head. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who... Really hasn't gone anywhere. I thought he was supposed to be retired or something, stepping away. There's no stepping away. He's out there almost more than ever. Dr. McCary made this point when we had him here last week. He's like, he kind of pulled a fast one on everyone by claiming he was stepping away. It's just not happening. So he was on CNN over the weekend. So there's a guy over at CNN called, I want to make sure I get this right, Jim Acosta. He's not really very well known. Uh, But I guess for a while there, he was somehow their White House correspondent. And he was just sort of like this left-wing resistance guy that I guess they let him go and sort of play act as the White House correspondent, like a a long prank by CNN during the Trump years. And then I guess they had enough of him, and they gave him a weekend show, like sort of like this left-wing opinion show. I don't know. I, I don't watch CNN ever, let alone on the weekends. Can you imagine? Could be any more depressing. And like, oh, you know, it's Saturday. Hey, let's let's go see what Jim Acosta has to say. Is it even on Saturdays? I don't know. It might be on Sundays. I have no idea. But he's, I guess, got this left-wing opinion show over there. And he had Fauci on. As you know, this is Fauci's definitely a, a member of the tribe. And Fauci is still clinging to the natural origin theory on COVID. Even while saying that he's completely open-minded and he hasn't come to a conclusion, basically everything that he says is, I'm open-minded, I'm not really sure, but, and then he tries to make it seem like the science heavily indicates that it didn't come from the lab. And as it becomes more and more obvious 
that it did come from the lab. He's got kind of like a novel explanation potentially for that. Cut 32. A lab leak could be that someone was out in the wild, maybe looking for different types of viruses in bats, got infected, went into a lab, and was being studied in the lab, and then it came out of the lab. But if that's the definition of a lab leak, Jim, then that still is a natural occurrence. The other possibility is someone takes a virus from the environment that doesn't actually spread very well in humans and manipulates it a bit, and accidentally it escapes or accidentally infects someone, and then you get an outbreak. Yeah, that's the other possibility, Dr. Fauci, that everyone's talking about. That's the actual lab leak that we're talking about, not this thing where you go get bitten by a bat in the wild or something. Then you go to a lab, and then you walk out of the lab, and then it's kind of a lab leak. What, what is that? Just grasping at straws. I don't get it. We got a break. We'll come right back. A lot to get to still. Halfway through the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show, Monday edition. Still to come in our next hour, Vivek Ramaswamy will be here. He's running for president. I want to get his take on the news of the day involving these bank failures and a few other topics as well. So looking forward to that. We mentioned on Friday with Shannon Breen. We had her here in studio ahead of Fox News Sunday over the weekend. And we briefly touched on this really embarrassing incident that happened at Stanford Law School last week. In which there was a federal judge who had been invited by the Federalist Society, a conservative student group. Judge Kyle Duncan, a Trump appointee, and he was there to give a lecture on the law. And there was a huge firestorm at the law school by these crazy people, left-wing students, who do not want anyone that they disagree with to be given a platform. And they have all their talking points and all their excuses and all their buzzwords, and they agitated for days to get the event canceled. They put up photo arrays of the executive board of the Federalist Society at Stanford. Their names, their faces, it's like, you should be ashamed, public shaming. And apparently just very ugly abuse of Federalist Society members is now commonplace at elite law schools. And these administrations basically tolerate it because they let left-wing students do whatever they want. But if you're right of center, get ready for every possible form of scrutiny because the inmates at the asylum are running the place at the administrative level and at the student level. Like, they're all radical leftists. There are still a few adults left in the room. I guess, at some of these places, which leads us to some of the fallout at Stanford. So here's just like a little taste of it. Some of the heckling that happened during this attempted lecture by this federal judge last week, cut 39. So you've invited me to speak here, and I'm being heckled nonstop. And I'm just asking for an administrator to sign the That's an administrator. You're racism, Michelle. I would like it. Yes, 
If you want a marketplace ideas, you've got what you wanted. Man, just like the whiny kids. That is an administrator. So the backdrop there is the DEI dean, the diversity, equity, and inclusion dean, showed up. Not to tell the students that they had to follow the free speech guidelines. They have rules about this that were clearly being broken. And the DEI dean showed up and sided with the hecklers. She stood there and lectured this guest, this federal judge, some like like diversity, you know, administrative nobody, right? Part of this bureaucracy that frankly makes college and law school so expensive, this massive amount of overhead with all this DEI stuff. This woman shows up and decides that it's her role to hector and berate the guest of a student group that she didn't like. And she did mention the speech guidelines, but she also said that she felt like they should be changed. She was taking the side of the mob. And that was just a short clip where we didn't have to bleep anything. There was lots of other stuff that was just so crass and profane that we can't play it here on the radio. Like some of these people had no interest in discourse at all. They were uh, insulting this man in highly sexual terms. It was just a pathetic display because a sitting federal judge had the temerity to show up at this law school and say words. They couldn't stand for that. And the DEI dean decided that her role in all of this was to be on their side and to, like, give this guy a piece of her mind for, like, nine minutes or whatever. Just a total disgrace. So word of this got out, and some of the clips started circulating, and it was such a bad look for Stanford. So the dean of the law school, not the DEI dean, they've got, I mean, there's so many positions. I'd love to know what that woman was making, by the way what her salary is for that super important job. But the Stanford Law School dean then put out a statement that was like kind of alluding to how it wasn't supposed to happen that way, but there was no apology. There was no indication of consequences for anyone. The judge, by the way, who had this horrible experience, he did not mince words after the fact. He said he had been treated like dog bleep. And called on the administrator who came in to basically whip the mob up further and lecture him during his lecture. He called on her to be fired. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of egg on Stanford's face. And Stanford has seemed to like descend into crazyville in a lot of ways in recent years. They were never near the top of my list of institutions that had gone the most woke and the most crazy. But over the last couple years, I mean, you go through, like, the lists of banned words that there's a whole roster of this stuff. Like, there's a rap sheet now for Stanford. Something is really rotting and wrong at that university. And we have a great time. We do the show from the Hoover Institution out there. Hoover's great. It's a beautiful place. Stanford's amazing. It's a great school. When you let this type of thing take root and flourish and you signal that there really are no rules or the rules only apply to some people— You can destroy a great institution. 
And the worry is that that's what's underway right now at Stanford. Now, some of the public shaming and outrage got so significant, and I guess alumni got involved, that finally, over the weekend, there was a letter written by the president of the university. So the president of Stanford, and then also the dean of the law school, who I guess finally decided the previous statement wasn't enough or was told the previous statement was not enough because now you've got it up to the level of the president of the whole school saying, okay, we've got to change the direction of the conversation here a little bit. They put out a letter publicly to the judge, right? So it wasn't mealy-mouthed like, you know, we regret that mistakes were made. This was an apology letter to the judge. I'll just read it to you. Dear Judge Duncan, we write to apologize for the disruption of your recent speech at Stanford Law School. As has already been communicated to our community, what happened was inconsistent with our policies on free speech, and we are very sorry about the experience you had while visiting our campus. While we are very clear with our students that given our commitment to free expression, if there are speakers they disagree with, they are welcome to exercise their right to protest. But not to disrupt the proceedings. Our disruption policy states that students are not allowed to prevent the effective carrying out of a public event, whether by heckling or other forms of interruption. In addition, staff members who should have enforced university policies failed to do so and instead intervened in inappropriate ways that are not aligned with the university's commitment to free speech. We are taking steps to ensure that something like this does not happen again. Freedom of speech is a bedrock principle for the law school, the university, and a democratic society, and we can and must do better to ensure that it continues even in polarized times. With our sincerest apologies again, Mark Tessier-Levine and Jenny Martinez, respectively the president of the school and the dean of the law school. So that's, as far as this type of thing goes, that's not bad. Now, what I'm curious to see is what the steps that they are taking to ensure that something like this doesn't happen again. Right, that's their promise. What steps would that mean? Right, putting out the letter to maybe calm the situation down a little bit is one thing and it's a welcome step. But what steps beyond that are they talking about when they allude to this? Because frankly, you need to do things that will get people's attention to prove and underscore and drive home that the rules actually matter. So it's all on video. You can find the students who were most egregiously violating the policy. They were aware of the policy. They were reminded of the policy before the event. They didn't care. They did it anyway. Will there be some sort of academic sanction against those students? Some sort of suspension? Something that will actually bite a little bit, not just a little slap on the wrist and don't do it again. I did appreciate the mention of, quote-unquote, staff members, unnamed, but obviously it's a reference to the DEI dean. By the way, what a, what a minimization of her role. Right, The students were talking about what an important administrator at the school she is, and she's just you know anonymously referred to in this letter as a staffer. Staff members 
who should have enforced the policies, failed to do so, and instead intervened in inappropriate ways. Okay, so you have someone who's tasked with enforcing the rules, doing exactly the opposite. I'm not a big call on people to be fired type of person, but what else should they do here? If not some, you know, maybe long suspension without pay, you have to do something or else these words mean nothing. I saw that the university did reach out to the Federalist Society students and saying, hey, like if you need some counseling or something because it's been a, a really messy situation for them, their names and faces plastered everywhere like they're criminals. They're like, oh, we have resources. And I read one of the resources that they offered was a meeting <laughs> with the DIA, uh, DEI dean who, who was a big part of the problem. So I would say the, the jury's out in Palo Alto. Is this school serious about putting an end to this disgraceful stuff, or is it just words? These words are fine. It needs to go a lot further than that, or they are hollow and empty. So we will stay tuned on this one. Please stay tuned to The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Some palace intrigue, some drama on the Democratic side. Reportedly, the vice president, Kamala Harris, is refusing to speak to Elizabeth Warren after what she saw as an insulting snub. We actually played this audio at the time, if I recall correctly, on the show. We talked about it, certainly. Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, was doing a public radio interview about a couple weeks ago. And she was asked about 2024 and whether Joe Biden was running and whether the ticket should again on the Democratic side be Biden and Harris. And Warren sort of punted on the question and deferred to Biden. And evidently that did not sit well with Team Kamala and specifically Kamala Harris herself. So here's the story from foxnews.com. Vice President Kamala Harris reportedly won't return Senator Elizabeth Warren's phone calls after the senator stopped short of endorsing Harris as President Joe Biden's vice president in 2024. Warren has called Harris twice to apologize for her comments, according to CNN. But the vice president has not returned her calls. The Massachusetts senator seemed to stop short of endorsing Harris as Biden's running mate in 2024 during a Boston public radio interview in January. The radio host asked Warren if Harris should be Biden's running mate if he runs, and her answer was this. Should Kamala Harris be the, his choice the second time around? You know, I, I really want to defer to what makes Biden comfortable on his team, but they need... They have to be a team, and my sense is they are. I don't mean that by suggesting I think there are any problems. I think they are. So she hedged. She didn't go all in. Yes, of course, it should be Biden and Harris. But then toward the end of that answer, you could almost sense her saying, oh, I don't want to get in trouble. Oh, no, no, I, I, I get the sense that they are, that they're a team. I, I don't mean anything by suggesting that. Well, after the interview, because of some pushback and some, I guess, internal angst within the Democratic Party, Warren ended up issuing a statement to WGBH News, fully endorsing Biden-Harris again. 
Quote, I fully support the president and vice president's reelection together and never intended to imply otherwise. So she said that publicly. Then Warren called Harris to apologize. Harris wouldn't return the call. She tried again. Harris wouldn't talk to her. This is based on the CNN report. You know, CNN is very well sourced among their fellow Democrats. So ultimately, the senator spoke to the chief of staff on behalf of Vice President Harris. Quote, but the Warren moment is infuriating many in Harris's circle. To them, it was the latest in a long string of snubs to a vice president whom they say has never gotten the respect or support she deserves. Warren's words sting even more, they say, because they came from a former rival who in 2020 hoped to be picked as Biden's running mate instead. That was in the CNN report. So... Obviously, Kamala Harris is extremely sensitive to these things. And there have been multiple stories about, frankly, her pettiness and her anger at people who aren't giving her the respect that she deserves. Of course, respect is earned. And I would not say that she has done such a bang up job as vice president that even people in her party would say, oh, yeah, wow, she's the future. Right. In a lot of ways, she's a laughingstock. A punchline a vulnerability from a Democratic perspective. I think that's probably why Warren didn't instantly answer, oh, yes, of course, when she was asked the question. Other Democrats have also been open about it. And I guess in Harris' world, they're creating an enemies list. And we know that what they've tried to do with their detractors, especially within their party, within the media, they lash out and they have played repeatedly two cards, the sexism card And the racism card. Like, oh, well, you're just doing this. You're targeting our gal. And I think a lot of this is probably driven by her. The common thread of toxicity in Kamala Harris's political life and the huge amount of turnover on staffs all the way up and down the food chain in her whole time in office. The common thread, the common denominator is her. So she's probably the one calling the shots on the enemies list. It's like, oh, well, you're just threatened by a powerful woman of color. You're not comfortable with this woman of color. I mean, this is the argument that they make. That is a shot across the bow every single time. If you say anything negative or even stop short of effusive praise, you're a problem, and we're going to basically call you a sexist and a racist. Now, I don't know if that works in the case of Elizabeth Warren. Even though Warren is actually trying to call and apologize and Kamala, I guess, is being like, nope, I'm unavailable. Strong, strong, petty Veep vibes here again from Kamala Harris. But if they try to smear Elizabeth Warren, and look, I'm no fan of Elizabeth Warren's, obviously, for all sorts of reasons. But trying to smear her as a sexist and a racist could be a problem. Because as we all know, according to Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren is a woman of color. The Guy Benson Show, back with our final hour when we return Vivek Ramaswamy, businessman, anti-woke crusader, presidential candidate, joins us on The Guy Benson Show, straight ahead. (laughs) 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you for tuning in. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m., then 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern is the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing. We recommend it. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com. For more information like where it's sold near you, you can order online, thelongdrink.com. Our website here, guybensonshow.com. Podcast is free every single day when the show is over. Follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Follow me personally on those same platforms at Guy P. Benson. We begin our happy hour with Vivek Ramaswamy, who is co-founder of Strive Asset Management, author of the book Woke Inc., and he is a presidential candidate on the Republican side ahead of 2024. And Vivek, it's great to have you on the show. Talk to you, Guy. How you doing? Doing very well. It was nice to see you recently down in Florida at the Club for Growth event. You were one of several announced or rumored presidential candidates there, and you addressed the crowd. You talked a lot about some of the themes of your book, obviously embarking on this presidential campaign. I am very curious to start today with SVB and the mess there over the weekend. I know there are a lot of Americans who are having – some uncomfortable flashbacks to 2008. They're worried about this. They're not sure exactly what's going on. There are discussions about bailouts and what's fair and who needs to be made whole. As you look at what's been happening over the last couple of days, what's your overall theory and take on what happened here and what should happen next? Yeah, so I've got I've got pretty clear views on this. Let's talk about what exactly happened. Silicon Valley Bank is a bank where a bunch of tech startups actually uh, bank there. They have deposit accounts there. Now, the bank itself took a lot of risks with that account. They bought mortgage-backed securities that are tethered to interest rates. Where interest rates are higher, those mortgage-backed securities perform more poorly. Their balances go down. The value of those assets go down. However, their customer base, tech startups, also need money more and are lacking for money in times of higher interest rates. And so that's a double whammy when interest rates went up. Silicon Valley Bank then failed. Now, a lot of those tech companies had more money in Silicon Valley Bank than they should have. Their CFOs were asleep at the switch. And so what would have happened normally is that they would have had to scramble to raise equity capital from other investors to say that, hey, my business model still works, but the CFO made a terrible mistake. And so we need to bring in equity capital, which means the CEOs and the existing venture investors own less of the company. So they won't make quite as much money if it's successful, but they still get to continue running their company. That's the way this would have normally played out. Instead, what happened is they said, no, 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 we're depositors in Silicon Valley Bank. And, you know, we have to save workers at our firm because we can't make payroll. And they left out the fact that they could just raise equity capital. But no, no, they said, no, 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 we need a bailout. That's effectively what they got when the Federal Reserve, when, when the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says, yes, the federal government is going to arrange for every depositor, every one of those tech startups, 
to get their money back, even if that's Roku, a company that had nearly half a billion dollars. I mean, it's completely responsible on balance at Silicon Valley Bank without diversification, without due diligence, that they still get all of that money arranged by effectively they've said it's not a bailout, but functionally it is absolutely a bailout. It's a bailout not of Silicon Valley Bank's shareholders, but it's a bailout of the shareholders of a bunch of tech startups that were doing business with Silicon Valley Bank. That's what happened. And I think it's fundamentally unjust, and there's some ironies to it, because Silicon Valley Bank actually was lobbying for years that it got to take these risks, that it had a looser risk requirements and capital requirements precisely because it was not systemically important. That means the government would not step in to help. Yet in their hour of need over the weekend, what do they all claim, including the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank, is that it is indeed systemically important, that it had to be done you know, by Sunday evening or there would be a bank run on the rest of America and started this fear-mongering campaign that creates, by the way, the very risk of a bank run. But they had this perverse incentive to create that risk because that increased the likelihood of them getting bailed out. Whereas what I would say is as president, if I was in the president, if I was the White House right now, I mean, I'm running for that job in January 2025. But if I was the White House now, I would separate how you handle Silicon Valley Bank, where you say that you don't reward bad behavior with bailouts. But if you want to manage the risk of a, of a run on banks, have the Federal Reserve step in as the lender of last resort, one of the few things the Federal Reserve should be doing rather than everything else they are, and then also actually up the FDIC insurance cap to some number higher than $250,000 to prevent that bank run. That would have been a reasonable solution. So anyway, that's that's sort of the long and the short of it. And what do you think of Yellen's performance over the weekend? Because I know she was out there on TV trying to reassure people, and there were a number of observers saying this really was not very reassuring. Then you had the president up this morning giving a statement at 9 a.m. trying to calm everyone down. What is your analysis of what we saw from the administration yesterday and today? Well, it's, it's sort of the opposite of calming. You know, you tell people to calm down. What do they do? They know that they're supposed to panic. And so, you know, I think that ironically, a lot of people haven't considered this possibility, but to me, it's kind of obvious. By taking this emergency measure with Silicon Valley Bank, a bank that they said previously was not systemically important, actually might even contribute to creating more of the very panic they claim to be averting. And you know what? So now they say that, well, they argued the other way. This would, you know, even though there's lots of problems at other banks now. Uh, Oh, it would have been even worse if we hadn't bailed out Silicon Valley Bank. Actually, you could argue it just the other way, which actually this is contributing to some of the panic when the government even has less firepower at the FDIC to handle those other bank situations. That's how I see it. Meanwhile, you are actively seeking the presidential nomination of the Republican Party. And not to take anything away from you, but I think when people were to list off maybe the top level contenders hypothetically or already announced in that race – Over the last couple of months, your name did not immediately spring to mind, right? You've got probably a difficult path to get into that top-level conversation. So you have to sort of break through. You aren't a politician. You're a business guy. You've been fighting against wokeness. That's been a big part of your public push over recent years. What are you trying to do to break through? What is the thrust of your campaign? What is your message to voters to at least get them to give you a serious look in a way that perhaps at first they might not be inclined to? What's that message that you're running on, especially in these crucial early days? Well, I think in the early states, we're actually having a great reception. guy. It actually doesn't feel like the uh, reception of somebody who's uh, you know, on, on the fringe, as you put it. Uh, but 
you know, yeah, we have no doubt about the about the hill that we have ahead of us to climb. But I think the Republican Party needs to embrace being the party that nominates outsider candidates for president. And you know what? what's unique in my case is I'm not running on somebody else's vision. I'm running on my vision for this country that I've developed through in Woking, in Nation of Victims, you know, traveling a majority of states in this country. That message has resonated. I think people are hungry for a missing national identity. Okay, we're in the middle of a national identity crisis. What we really need is some vision in the GOP answering the question of what it even means to be an American. American today. That's how you dilute the woke agenda to irrelevance. And there's been nobody taking on the problem of woke capitalism and the ESG movement more than I have in the last several years, including in the business world, competing directly against BlackRock and having success at that over the last year. But I think we ought to be the party of actual outsiders. If you want to take, if you want to gut the administrative state and the federal government, you better darn well do it with somebody who isn't a product of it, either at the state level or the federal level. And I think that's going to be a new tradition we see in the GOP. And you know what? I, I've lived the full arc of the American dream, so I, I'm, I'm not. I, mean, I don't apologize for that. I don't apologize for my success, and we'll actually be using those financial resources to compete in a way that's very different than when you know you see outside candidates that don't really have a budget to work with. I think it's a combination of not just being a self-funder, which a lot of self-funders you know don't have a particular vision, but think that just because they ran a company, they're entitled to run the country. That's not my pitch. I don't think that's the case. But I, I am running on a vision for our nation. And I think the combination of those two things, I think, actually will reinforce what I think will be a new norm in the Republican Party is that we need outsiders to actually, you know, really break the system in some measure. There's so much corruption in the federal government, but there's even corruption I've seen in this process in the early days of this candidacy. I've called on Ronna McDaniel to clearly state the debate stage criteria. She says she wants a pledge from, you know, every candidate to support the nominee. How about even just stating what the criteria are? That's something she hasn't even had the had the ability to do. I, and because I'm not beholden to the donor class, you know, I, I think that what what you normally do as a candidate is you ask for you know a bunch of donors with a hat in hand for permission to run. Uh, I didn't do that, and I think because you're because I'm not beholden, I'm going to be in a unique position to call out that corruption and the process, but eventually to fix it. One thing that I've enjoyed watching the early days of this candidacy is you're putting out substantive policy ideas. Now, whether people agree with all of them or not, I mean, that's the whole point of a campaign for you to try to sell that vision that you're talking about. But you're not just speaking in platitudes and vagaries. You're like, hey, this is what I believe. This is what I think we need to do as a country. What would be like maybe the the top three policy priorities that you're pushing? Because you're not afraid to get pretty specific on that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be uh, crystal clear and specific. So I think I've, I've called for the end to affirmative action in America, restoring merit. You know, that's something a president of the United States can actually do. You know, it's created by executive order under Lyndon Johnson. Well, if it was created by executive order, it can be ended by executive order. And President Trump and every other, you know, even Reagan, even Bush, they had the opportunities to do this. Those are you know, sacred cows you're not supposed to touch, even if you're a Republican. I disagree with that. I'm taking on those agendas directly. I've called for abandoning the climate cult that holds the United States back while leaving China untouched. And by the way, is one of the obstacles to a thing we've forgotten in the Republican Party. Don't just talk about spending cuts. Let's talk about GDP growth itself, a pro-growth agenda, unleashing the American economy. That's a big part of my platform, starting with not only just reform of the Federal Reserve, which I've talked about. That's one obstacle. But the climate cult is another obstacle. And if you're on the way, we're a freight train coming advocating for GDP growth in America. If you're on the tracks and in the way, we will run right straight through you, whether you're, whether it's the climate cult, whether it's the, the failures of the Federal Reserve. 
that's a big part of this campaign. And then, look, I, I, we've also seen other candidates uh, start to adopt, and I'm happy about this. Some of the proposals that I've been actually putting forth for a much longer time, I've pledged to close the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education. U.S. Department of Education has no reason to exist. In fact, it creates a lot of the wokeism that we see in schools because they use that as a condition for receiving federal money. It creates the worker shortage, the scale towards four-year college education over two-year education to be a welder or a carpenter or a builder. I've called for using the military to actually annihilate the cartel south of the border. I was doing that a long time ago. Now that's actually found its way into the popular vernacular and other candidates are adopting it. Same thing with respect to you know, closing the Department of Education. But I, our bet is that the voters will reward the person who led the way this year in defining that agenda. Forget the who. It is about the what and the why in 2023. What do we stand for? Why do we stand for it? And then the main strategy is that the person who led the way this year will be the person that the voters choose. And, and if, it's an out, if it's an outsider at that, then all the better. Vivek, last question, since you mentioned some of your rivals sort of obliquely there. I've been dying to ask you about this. There's been a bit of a debate playing out on the right about what's happened with Disney in Florida, where I'm sure you followed Governor DeSantis and what he and the Republicans down there did with Disney based on Disney's really just, you know, intrusion into Florida politics and the culture wars taking aside. And what DeSantis came and did was like, okay, if that's the choice you're going to make, then a lot of these special deals that you've gotten, extraordinary deals in Florida for years, we're going to reevaluate and and start to level the playing field and get rid of some of those sweetheart loopholes and that sort of thing. He was criticized by, among others, the former vice president, Mike Pence, saying, well, that's not really conservative. That is government meddling in private enterprise and punishing a private company for political beliefs. That's not something that we should be doing as conservatives. You wrote the book on wokeness in corporations, literally wrote the book in Woke Inc. As you watch that skirmish play out in these broader wars, who do you think was right? Do you think DeSantis did the right thing or does Pence have a point? I think that it's the, it's almost, again, something we do on the right too much is we get trapped in these artificial debates without actually a sense of what's happening. Why is Disney behaving the way they are? They're behaving the way they are in part because there's three shareholders who are the top shareholders of all American companies, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. Well, guess what? They force these companies to adopt environmental and social. Here, this relates to the social, the S-pronged social agendas that create a culture in these corporations that when the CEOs behave that way, it's not like the shareholders can say, oh, you're misbehaving. To the contrary, the shareholders will say that, you know what, uh, we're demanding that you behave this way. And then guess what? You know, a bunch of states across this country, including red states, that's advancing these very same agendas. And so I think that in some ways we get drawn into these, you know, I would say, political stunts that trend on media, but without actually getting to the essence of what's really happening. And I think the party that revives the spirit of Teddy Roosevelt, you know, because they speak softly and carry a big stick. I think sometimes we end up with the problem of, you know, speaking loudly and carrying a small stick. And we might need to live in a moment where we both speak loudly and carry a big stick. Vivek Ramaswamy, candidate for the presidency on the Republican side, co-founder of Strive Asset Management. His book that I've mentioned now a few times is Woke Inc. Vivek, appreciate it very much. With that, we'll take a break. We'll come back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Moving forward here on The Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. And we go out of our way to keep you fully covered when it comes to fast food developments on this program. We understand what the people want, what the people need. 
and the people need updates on fast food news. And there are two that I want to bring to your attention. First, I was just out in Arizona over the weekend for a speaking engagement. And at my hotel, they told me there is a free shuttle within a three-mile radius, wherever you want to go. It's on the house. So I asked the woman, I said, is there an In-N-Out burger within three miles of this hotel? And she said, oh, I'm sorry, there's not. I said, okay. And I was a little bit crestfallen. That's fine. And she could tell I was disappointed. So then she said, don't worry. Where are you from? I said, I'm from the East Coast. She said, you're not really missing that much. I said, well, excuse me, I've had it before. This is not my maiden voyage here with In-N-Out Burger. So she realized, she's like, oh, okay, he's a fan. She was trying to make me feel better. So I did not get In-N-Out Burger. On the way to the airport, early Sunday morning, we passed one. And I just, like, put my hand up to the window of the Uber. Like, oh, I miss you next time, perhaps. Meanwhile, Chick-fil-A announcing a $1 billion planned international expansion through the year 2030, where Chick-fil-A wants to move into new markets in Asia and Europe. And I see no reason they shouldn't do this. Their product is very good. I said some controversial things about them. I think they're fine. I prefer some other chicken sandwiches, for example, spicy chicken sandwich from Wendy's. I do like their nuggets. I like their waffle fries. I like their peach Milkshakes in the summer. Their service is incredible. It's a great company, Chick-fil-A. Having lived in Asia as a kid, Asians love American fast food. KFC, McDonald's in particular. There's an opening here if they play their cards right. A little Chick-fil-A action all across the world. Would they still be closed internationally on Sundays? That's one question. My bet is yes. Given the values of that company, my bet is yes. So if you're traveling abroad in the years to come, you might get some home cooking, eat more chicken, the cows and that whole thing. Will they stick with that ad campaign? Does that translate in, like, Germany? I don't know. But good luck to them. Kind of exciting if you're a Chick-fil-A fan. They're on the march. Capitalism on the move and delicious chicken. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this break. Please stay here. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, and we open the broadcast today by welcoming in Charlie Gasparino from Fox Business Network to explain exactly what's going on with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Here's part of that conversation with Charlie, who's one of the best in the business. Listen. If you can just explain as simply as you can what on earth is happening with Silicon Valley Bank, I think a lot of Americans are having deeply uncomfortable flashbacks to 2008 when the banking system faltered and then collapsed and there was a lot of pain for a long time for a lot of people. The White House and others saying, nope, this is different. No need to panic. What actually happened with this bank and where do we go from here? By the way, they said it before 2008 actually happened. (laughs) Don't panic. We're almost through this thing. I I covered it blow by blow. Trust me on this. Um, I wrote a best-selling book on it. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. Every financial crisis has, is different. Every, every one has some of the same elements. Let, let's just back up on how we got to this point. During, since 2020, since the, the, the economy was locked down in 2020, we've been spending money fiscally 
um, at astronomical at an at a rate not seen historically. I mean, debt is. I think we have a hundred. Debt is a hundred and thirty percent of GDP right now. I mean, that's so. You know, we're, we're approaching twice as much of our G. We have more than twice as much debt than we have GDP. Um, we've been printing money like there's like it's going out of style until recently. The Fed has greatly expanded its balance sheet. That that some of that money printing. When they say print money, what, what it really means is they buy in the open market securities. So they're essentially buying the securities that were that the Treasury is issuing. It's a little bit of a a shell game, I guess you could say. You put those things together, and you're going to get some bad stuff once the music stops. Now, why did the music stop? The music stopped because we had all this, you know, caused the massive inflation, which is a wicked tax on the working and middle class. So while you can speculate in stocks through this stuff, you know, when it really comes down to it, average people don't do that. They have to put gas in the car, they have to put food on the table, and they can't afford it. And that's essentially what happened when the, uh, about a year ago when the Fed started raising rates. When you normalize out of that insanity that I told you, and we are talking trillions of dollars of insanity that never ended. You know, there was one thing when you shut down the economy to do some stuff, right, for a year. Then they kept doing it. Joe Biden did three or four stimulus plans after that. He called it different stuff. I mean, he made he called something the Anti-Inflation Act. I mean, I can't remember what he was what he what he called them, but he, they never stopped spending money. Joe Manchin should be ashamed of himself because he helped cause some of this stuff because he went along with those things in the end. Uh, Jerome Powell until recently didn't stop printing money. He kept buying bonds, keeping interest rates low. Uh, so. When the inflation step started, the Fed does the reverse course. Republicans obviously have have, this, have the House now, so there's not going to be many more spending measures uh, coming. And now what you have is the inevitable unwind of that excess. And that unwind will manifest itself in stock prices going nuts, ups and, ups and downs. We're still technically in a, in a bear market, though not t terribly off the highs. Uh, crypto being crushed. Bitcoin and others. Most most crypto is completely evaporated. Bitcoin uh, was as high as sixty. It it's, has a believe it or not a rally today, so it's at twenty four. But you, you, that's a fairly significant decline. Um, meme stocks. Remember, people were buying all these crazy stocks with money losing companies. They've corrected, and now you're going to get other corrections. The banking system, in particular, in particularly, is vulnerable to those corrections because. Banks so why this bank, Charlie? Because, I mean, obviously, for now, they're telling us it's not systemic. This thing's kind of walled off. It's limited to this and, and one other bank. Don't worry. It's not going across the board, which is sort of the cascade effect that we saw in 2008. What is it about this bank, and why should or shouldn't be other average Americans worried about what might come next? Because they're telling us this is just like a, a small kind of a blip, if you will. My full interview with Charlie Gasparino, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the whole show every day on demand when the program is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. March Madness is upon us. Christine has some questions, but also finally some answers as well. We'll get to all of that when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home Stretch, Monday edition, Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. 
Thank you for listening. Well, for only the second time ever, I was watching Selection Sunday last evening on CBS very closely. I was getting ready, of course. I was focused like a laser on my appearance with Trey Gowdy on his program last night. That was my number one priority, as you might imagine. But I might have just had an eye on the selection show for the NCAA tournament because only twice in the history of the tournament has my team, the Northwestern Wildcats, been really seriously in the conversation in the mix. They made the tournament for the very first time in 2017, first time in school history. And then they were widely considered to be a lock even just a few weeks ago based on their resume that they had put together after really no expectations before the season started. They were the consensus pick to finish 13th out of 14 teams in the Big Ten. And they finished in second place. And as the broadcast unfolded on CBS with a crowd of thousands of people gathered at Welshrine Arena and many others watching on TV. We just waited and braced for the name to get called as the brackets were being revealed. It happened in Cut 37. Now, first and second round games in Sacramento, California on Thursday and... That was a shot from inside the arena. Someone had his phone. You can hear the pep band in the background. And the Cats will be headed to Sacramento, California for a Thursday evening game around 7.30 Eastern time. And first of all, I'm, of course, thrilled and excited because this is, again, a history-making season for the Cats. They have had so much pain and failure for so many decades So to have a magical season like this, especially out of nowhere, is incredible. It's part of the reason why I keep talking about it here, even though a lot of you probably don't care at all. (laughs) It's ultimately, it's my show. I'm excited about it. Just give me this. Let me live. And hopefully I have weeks worth of excitement on this, but you never know. It could be one and done on Thursday against Boise State. That's their first round draw. The Cats are a seven seed against the 10th seed, Boise State. Broncos, I think it is, the Broncos. And I've been telling friends, I think I even mentioned it here on the air, that of all the possibilities in eight different cities I'd gone through and contingency planned and I looked at realistic scenarios, I came up with like 30 realistic scenarios of where they'd be seated and where they'd be headed. And I told some folks, the one thing I really didn't want that I was rooting against was a Thursday game in Sacramento. (laughs) And they are playing a Thursday game in Sacramento. So the decision then had to be made, do I, like an insane person, get on an airplane, especially given how much I've been traveling already recently, fly all the way across the country for basically less than a day to then turn around and come back to the East Coast for this game? And because I'm a lunatic, the answer is yes. So Wednesday night after the show, I'm flying to Sacramento, where, unfortunately, almost nothing good ever happens, (laughs) right, from a political standpoint. And I'm just hoping that the outcomes, from my perspective, will be a little bit better 
on Thursday. And if they can win on Thursday, then that would probably set up a tough date with UCLA on Saturday, which I could not attend because I'll be in New York co-hosting the big show all weekend. Then I've got Gutfeld and outnumbered early next week. So this is my shot at it. The Boise State game on Thursday. And if by some stroke of fate they win, and then they can play UCLA and out of nowhere figure out a way to beat the Bruins, then we're looking at Vegas for the Sweet 16. And you better bet I would do everything in my power to get there. But I'm not even allowing myself into the headspace of advancing to round two because the last stretch of this season has been tough for the Cats. They lost, what, four of their last five? If memory serves, yeah, they were on a three-game losing streak, then they beat Rutgers, and they lost again to Penn State in the Big Ten tournament. So, look, if they shoot like they did the last couple of games, they can lose to anyone. But if they play defense like they are capable of doing and shoot even okay, they can beat virtually anyone. That's some of the excitement around March Madness. So I'll be wearing my purple, flying out to the West Coast, and rooting on the Cats on Thursday. We will be on the air, God willing, if everything goes as planned, we'll be on the air from Sacramento on Thursday, ahead of the Thursday evening game. And then I shudder to even mention this, but I get right on an airplane that night and take a red eye to New York. That will be a long, brutal red eye if we lose. And as a Northwestern fan, I just, I'm beaten into submission, right? My default expectation is a crushing, disappointing, gut-wrenching loss. So that's my expectation. Like, this is part of my illness. I am spending a lot of time and money and points, although I'm doing it almost exclusively on points for this trip. But a lot of resources and time to be in Sacramento, California, for less than 24 hours with the expectation that I will do all of that for the privilege of watching my own team lose and then have a miserable flight back. Like that's like, and I'm doing this voluntarily. No one is forcing me to do this. In fact, my dad was like, you know what? Why don't you just hold off? Why don't you just see what happens in the first weekend? And then if they somehow win, you can go to Vegas. I'm like, por que no los dos? How about Thursday? And then, you know, Viva Las Vegas if it comes to that. This has happened twice ever in our history. I'm going. And if we lose, we lose. If we win, I will try not to be insufferable on Friday's show. How about that? So Christine, who knows so little about college basketball that she referred to the NCAA tournament as the madness of March on the air here a few days ago, She has been studying up. She wanted to watch the selection show to figure out where I would be and how she would have to plan for producing the show. So, Christine, as you watched Selection Sunday, I can only imagine the level of confusion and number of questions that arose as you watched the brackets unfold because the show is kind of designed for people who at least have some passing knowledge of what they're watching. And then there's you. So... How was the experience? So it was a little confusing. I'm not going to lie. And Bobby wasn't there at first. So it was just me and whoever was announcing. I I didn't understand 
the teams were coming in so fast and it, it, it was just a lot. And I knew I needed to focus on um, the Midwest. I knew that's where I had to be. So then once they started announcing that and I heard um, Northwestern, I, I like started getting excited. It's not even my school. And I was like, woohoo, okay. We got this. And now you I saw because they had the live shot of the team and mm-hmm. our fans and everyone cheering. So that's sort of they they set that up for certain teams, get the live reaction. And then you were like, oh, it's California. Yeah, I had to write to you remember in the group. And I go, OK, so let me get this straight. Guy, you're now in Sacramento on Thursday. Right. And we that's don't right. know the time of the game. And that's when Correct. Bobby walks in. So now Bobby sees <laughs> me like, you know, up close at the TV. And I go, shh. I'm like, I just got to make sure this is correct. And he goes, what are you doing? He's like, I was gone for 24 hours. What is happening? But I um, like because he was back from his bachelor party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how'd that go? Um, he got into like a wreck with those go-karts. And oh, no. so did his my brother-in-law who was with them. My brother-in-law had to go to like emergency room care. He's in a sling. Bobby has bruises all in his arm. And that was just the beginning of the um, bachelor party. Now, are you sure that was go-karts? Or could that have been some strippers gone wild? Oh, my gosh. Don't even say that. No, they showed a, They sent pictures uh, of them. So at least that's confirmation. Like, the rundown, the itinerary that they showed you was not a ruse. It was real to our conversation last week. Right. And I'm not going to go too much further in this, but I was right in there. There's always one in the group, one guy, and you know who you are. And my husband is not allowed to play with you ever again. (laughs) Never, ever again. I saw those text messages. You are not a nice boy. And no way. Okay. So he comes (laughs) in from that very interesting experience to another one of his wife intently watching the NCAA Selection Sunday show on CBS like, who is this person? Yes. What is going on in my life? But it was for the show. You're really just doing your job. And now the answer is pretty simple, right? I fly out Wednesday night after the show, so no issue there. Should be there, knock on wood in plenty of time, do the show from Sacramento, try to get all the bad vibes about California politics out of the way during the show, and then I'll go over and catch the end of the pep rally, go to the game, And then go right back to my hotel, get my stuff, go to the airport, and try to cry myself to sleep after the loss as I fly back to the East Coast for what will be an exhausting Friday ahead of tons of TV in New York. That's the game plan. And you just have to sort of – the producing is important. I think what's going to be extra important is just managing me and my emotions. Uh, Me? Yeah, if we, I know it's I mean, scary, and it's so sad because like Wyatt and Dan are not here, so it's just me, you, your emotions, my crazy emotions. Because who knows what this week is going to bring? It's going to bring something. I know. I know. I mean, this is wow. We're going to be a mess because <laughs> if if we lose, and I just I have to just keep saying it. It's like I'm trying to reverse engineer this thing, like superstitiously, where I'm trying to manifest the bad thing so much that it cancels itself out. But if we lose, I am not going to be the peppiest I've ever been on Friday after the red eye, after the loss. But if we win, I'll be like walking on sunshine and you'll have to kind of rein me in. And I'll also be sleep deprived probably. So it'll be like, what is he going to say? 
So you're gonna you're gonna have to be the adult in the room on Friday, Christine. I'm warning you. Okay. Prepare I got- for days. I'm just going to tell you, I think I got this because Friday is St. Patty's Day. So you know what my state is going to be like. Well, you always call out on St. Patty's Day or the day after. You miraculously are ill the day after St. Patrick's Day, but it's a Saturday this time. So if you can just hold off on your activities, so to speak, for St. Patrick's Day until we are off the air on Friday, that would be much appreciated. I mean, it's Monday. There's no promises. Okay, so we're not getting a commitment on that. That's fine. Plus, you've got other things coming up in your life this week that we have to talk about on the home stretch, but not today because we're out of time. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. We will see you then. Talk to you then. Same time, same place. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.